you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 6, as we're just going to be looking uh, deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, just trying to get through uh, the rest of it. I only have planned one more lesson after this, so uh, that'll just be a total of four lessons as we're <clears throat> discussing all the things that Jesus talks about as he goes throughout this sermon, and you will recall that um, uh, since the very beginning, one of the main points that we have made is, is all throughout Jesus is describing or giving teaching for the people of his kingdom. He's talking about the qualities that are supposed to uh, describe his uh, church, his disciples, his, his students. Um, and then you just keep going on in chapter 5, and then he gets into some of the Old, command, the Old Testament commandments that they followed and how it was supposed to go much deeper than many of them had allowed it to go. Instead of you know, penetrating the heart, they never let it get past the surface. Well, now we're just going to continue into Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to go through all of Matthew chapter 6. And I think that this um, is kind of a, a, a really... I think it's a really fortunate unit break in our Bibles because you see in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6 all the way through verse 34, I think that it all really has to do with essentially the priorities that these people, the church, Christ's disciples are going to have uh, and really <laughs> the priorities that um, contend with what the world's priorities are. And so... What I want to do tonight is just look at, as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, what, just ask the question, what is your focus? What is my focus? What should it be? And, and what really tends to be uh, the things that the world brings in that I think uh, kind of stifles our, uh, our priorities of, of God and really just our energy in trying to do what he wants us to do in evangelism, do what he wants to do in encouragement, and just as how we function within the kingdom. And so with all of this being said, I think no matter what, we're going to break this up into three sections, but I'm going to ask it from the standpoint of what priority are you, do you have? Is it God's priorities or is it man's priorities? And so the very first thing that I do want to talk about is uh, our priority of, of attention. Whose attention are we seeking for? And, and why are we seeking for that person's attention? From the very beginning of chapter 6, I think he, he just, it just makes it clear what we're going to be talking about all throughout this lesson. Um, the problem is an inward contention for attention by God or man. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So once again, it, it, the issue that he is going to be discussing all throughout is this contention between earthly desires and spiritual desires, carnal desires and the eternal desires. Uh, and obviously, how do we find out what, what God's uh, desires are but coming to his word? But as you go deeper into chapter 6, what you find is Jesus giving what I think is some pretty relatable examples, illustrations of how people act, religious or not. How people act, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, the attention that we are seeking for. Now, beginning, there's a few different ways, uh, a few different things that he brings up throughout the first part of Matthew chapter 6, and verses 1 through 18. And so we'll just kind of break that down a little bit. But in verse 2... 
one way that I think that we uh, tend to seek for man's attention is exactly what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. And we're going to kind of be skipping around, but we're, we're still going to ultimately uh, hit all of the verses uh, within this chapter. But, but as we just read in verse 2, what, what are we seeing here? Well, we're seeing a good deed being done, right? You're giving to the poor, but it's obviously for the wrong reasons. And it's doing it while, while, while people are trying to get all of the attention and all of the glory uh, from, from one specific source. And ultimately, it's not God. Uh, which we're going to talk about more. But uh, honestly, I think we still see this today. Um, you don't necessarily see people, you know, uh, people in the synagogues or in the streets necessarily, but what do you see? Well, you see people taking pictures and posting it on Facebook or online or whatever. And then what is in the description? Well, they tend to write a little novel, uh, a little uh, book about all of the great things they've done today. And it, it tends to start with that little beautiful sentence. Listen, I don't do it for the praise. <laughs> but let me just go ahead and toot my own horn for the rest of this post and let you know exactly how, how, you know, how good I have been. I don't do it for the praise, but look at me giving to this homeless, just, just the tramp on the street, right? Look, look at how I'm treating this man who is neglected and who is ignored by everyone else. And, look, and I come up. I'm the good Samaritan. You, you, you see that a lot, especially on social media, which is one of the reasons I hate it. But you, you see it all the time. And, and our society is pretty geared towards that idea of just that humble brag. No such thing, I don't think. You know, hashtag humble brag. I'm going to tell you exactly everything that I just did, and you're going to glorify me for it. And if you don't, well then, obviously, your, your priorities are mixed up. Or maybe it's mine. Because whose glory am I seeking for the entire time? Well, it's certainly, it's certainly not the Father who sees in secret. Otherwise, I would have kept it that way. No, I wanted to make sure it was anything but private, and I wanted to bring it before the public and make sure everybody knew about it. And so I think we still see this idea today, people blowing trumpets in the streets. It doesn't necessarily have to be literally taking a trumpet in the street and blowing it. It can just be, you know, trying to invite every bit of, of getting all of the credit that you possibly can. And so, again, the attention that they're focusing on is not God's. Well, going beyond that, Beginning in verse 5, he begins by talking about another issue. He tells them, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. And so just again, from the outset, when you read that verse, what is he saying they're doing it for? They're doing it to be seen by men. And all throughout this chapter, especially in the first 18 verses here, what you find is he, he, he consistently comes back to this idea of the father who sees in secret. And also coming back to this idea of, listen, they're getting their reward in full right now. And when you think about that reward, uh, when you flesh that out, it just really doesn't seem worth it. But hopefully we'll see that as we continue to go on. But he starts in verse 5 by talking about, really, I think, the, the, the religious people. And so they pray loudly, and they want, everyone, and they want everybody to, to see and hear them, all of the things that they are saying, uh, you know, because they sound holy, but not with holy hearts. But that's where he starts with the, the hypocrites, those who would be, are supposed to be religious. But then you get down to verse 7, and I think you get more so to uh, not just the, the religious world, but maybe more so the other side of that, the, the, um, 
the Gentiles, those who do not have God necessarily. And so in verse 7 he says, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Now this is, there's something added into this, I think. At the beginning in verse 5 he's saying, listen, you need to not be doing this for the wrong reasons. But when you pray to God, you also need to make sure that you have some confidence in there. When you think about how the Gentiles would uh, as he says, use meaningless repetition. Why do you think that they had to do that? Why do you think they had to speak so loudly so that their God could maybe possibly, in the midst of all of the chaos, maybe just hear them? I kind of think about uh, what Elijah, how he mocks the, the prophets of Baal, and he says, hey, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's going out to relieve himself. Maybe you just need to do a little bit more, and they just, they, they make, <laughs> they just look stupid and foolish as they start to mutilate themselves, as they're trying to get the attention of this wooden, dead idol. But we have a God we don't have to look like an idiot for. We have a God who says, you come to me. You come to me sincerely and genuinely, and you give me all of your emotions. You let that out on me. I want to hear them, and I want you to come to me in the proper manner. But I will hear you. And so we have confidence there, unlike the Gentiles who really have to repeat themselves over and over again because it's possible that their God didn't hear it. Our God does. And so uh, they... I, either, but either way you look at it, whether it's uh, from the hypocrites to the Gentiles... They're, they're ultimately trying to be seen and heard, but not in the ways that God has prescribed. Uh, finally, you go over into verse 16, and he says, uh, beginning in verse 16, this is pretty interesting. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance uh, so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, first of all, um, generally, especially today, the way you're noticed is not necessarily by neglecting your appearance, but rather you put a lot of effort and, it, and energy into it. Now, I, I would just say, I think they did the same thing. I think they did put a lot of effort into neglecting their appearance. I think they made a, a, a conscientious decision and, and <laughs> took steps forward to make sure that they looked this kind of uh, uh, just deprived that they looked like they were truly broken and, and, and truly dis, uh, or, uh, distressed and sorrowful, maybe trying to look uh, somewhat like Job, that innocent sufferer that we find uh, in, in, that, in the wisdom literature. But either way, what are they doing it for? To be noticed. All throughout what I think you find is Jesus saying, ultimately, I don't want you to be. I don't think that's... Uh, the main thing is you're not supposed to be searching for all of this attention and all of this glory that the world has to give because ultimately that glory, it's not glory at all. But rather it's, 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 it's nothing but, but something that is fading and fleeting away so very quickly before your eyes. Um, they, they weren't fasting. They weren't doing these things for God, obviously, as, as we see Jesus say over and over again, but rather they were doing it so that they, way they would be noticed by men looking uh, deprived, as we already said. But this reminds me of a passage in the Old Testament that I really like. And, and again, it comes back to this, uh, this repetitious language. Whenever God repeats something over and over again, I think there's a reason for it. I think it's ultimately because, oh, I, I just messed up the chart somehow. <laughs> I'll try to get back to that, but... Uh, Whenever God repeats 
what he wants from us. Ultimately, I think it's because he wants us to really hear everything that he has to say. And I think I got it back up and running. Over in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 7. There we go. Zechariah chapter 7, beginning in verse 5. You see this repetition again. He says, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? I really like the way the New King James renders the, uh, renders the verse there. Because as he asked this question, he says, was it, was it really for me? For me? Uh, have you ever been, I don't know about you, but I remember when I was, especially in high school, when I got to the point in middle school and high school when my parents weren't, you know, looking over my shoulder as I was doing my homework, I, I will admit, I became a little lax in that. I, I, I didn't take as, I didn't put as much effort into it. And so I remember a few times where my dad would come up to me after getting a grade from a test or a homework assignment or maybe uh, just a project that the grade wasn't reflecting exactly what he wanted it to. And he would come up and ask me, he'd say, are, are you sure that you tried your hardest here? And I'd go, oh, well, of course I did. I, 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 were, I, I made sure that it, everything was finished. I did it all. I completed the task. And then, he, and then he'd just look at me and say, but really, did you though? Now, every time I knew it, I played dumb, but trust me, I knew every time what he, was, what he meant by that. That repetition, it's profound. It's impactful. What are, what, it's emphasizing that obviously I wasn't trying my hardest. That obviously I wasn't putting my all into it like I would had they been looking over my shoulder uh, in, in, at, the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of my life when I was much younger. In the same way, I think God repeats things to try and get us to think, May, maybe I haven't been. Maybe I haven't been truly uh, sincere in these things. And you'd think that after going through the captivity, being in exile, and as they are, you know, finally back into, into the promised land and they get to see this rebuilt temple and they're trying to get back to the, 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 become that holy nation that they were supposed to be all along, you'd think that they would understand this finally, but they don't. They didn't learn the lesson. They still needed to become that holy people that he was always calling for and they still needed to learn uh, the, the sincerity that was supposed to go along with their worship, not just this uh, going through the motions, emotionless worship. Well, with all that being said, how do we focus on the right thing? How is it that we focus on uh, the right attention? Well, going back up in, in the first 18 verses here, we already read in verse 2, he says that, here are people who are, you know, sounding the trumpet before them so that way everyone sees what they're doing, their good deeds. In verse 3, he says, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so how do we focus on the right attention there? When we do, when we do those righteous deeds, don't allow yourself to be bogged down with the credit. This is something that I, I, I really believe People who try to make sure that they get all of the credit that they deserve for everything that they've done, honestly, that takes a lot of energy and, and really a lot of time that we just don't have. 
Because you got to make sure that, you know, if I did even the smallest of chores, oh, somebody better say something about that. Timing, timing's key because you got to make sure that everybody's in the vicinity of, of, you know, this glorious action that you're doing so that they actually do see it. But it takes so much energy and effort to, to try and, you know, track everybody down to make sure that you get all the credit. Maybe we just need to simply vow to stay silent. Just silently, privately do those righteous deeds and move on. Trusting that the Father who sees in secret does, and he'll reward us for that. Uh, he goes on, in, in, as we already read in verses 5 and 7, talking about both the hypocrites and the Gentiles, how they pray. Instead of praying repetitiously, instead of praying loudly for all of us to hear, maybe we need to seclude ourselves like Christ did. You remember, uh, all throughout his ministry, even Christ would try to seclude himself, would be alone. Why? Because he wanted to be alone with his Father. And he wanted to speak with him uh, uh, in that way. In verse 6, he says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, that phrase comes up several times for a reason. We're not supposed to miss it. Uh, finally, in verse 16, as he talks about those who, the hypocrites who neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men, Beginning in verse 17, he says, I think the answer, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I think a good question to ask is, do, do you trust that? <laughs> do you have confidence in that? I think we show it by our actions. Do you have confidence in that? Well, if we got to, if, if, you know, if we put a, a camera in your brain and we got to see all of the things that you did throughout the week, would we be able to see, oh, no, this, this man really does, this, this man or woman, they really do care about the attention, getting it from God? Or would we see they clearly want all of the attention, whether it's positive or negative, from their peers and everyone that's around them? And I think we can see that by our actions. And it, so this is a very hard lesson for the current culture especially. But what Jesus said, says here is ultimately you need to work not to get all the credit, you need to work to not be noticed by men. Uh, and I will say, I think that that's a more relaxing uh, avenue to take. I don't know about you. Maybe you disagree, but I think it, uh, it is much easier to just give it all to God and say, I know that he sees it all and be able to go throughout our, our everyday. So there's a contention for trying to get attention by man or God, and we need to choose getting that attention from God, seeking God's attention. But also I think there's a contention when it comes to looking for either the treasures of man or God. First of all, you keep on moving in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Uh, and in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, when he talks about this, when he uses the word treasure, ultimately what that means is it is that which you value above all else. I don't think it necessarily just has to be money. I don't think the application is, is just specifically monetary. I think it's more broad than that. I think that treasures are treasures that could contend with God's priority in our lives. Maybe it could be a spouse. Could it be your kids? Or maybe, as we were just talking about, it could be the attention of man. It could be a job. It could be sports. 
It could be, you know, academic prestige, you name it. It can be anything, whatever is an idol, whatever you are putting in front of a relationship with your God. I think that's what the treasures ultimately are, are depicting. It is the material, temporal things over a relationship with the eternal, all-powerful God. Now, look at the differences between the, the security of both sides. Now, he talks about the, uh, whether, whatever the treasures may be. In verse 20 specifically, or at the end of verse 19, he says, where moth and rust destroy or where thieves could come in and, and steal. But he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Now, there are plenty of things that we can get, that we can gain in this life, whether it be, you know, money or financial stability or a house, anything that we put in, anything that we put in between us and God, all of those things can be lost and so quickly. Money, that's going to burn. Ultimately, everything's going to turn to ash one day. But it'll fade, it'll rot, it'll rust. It'll fade to dust. Uh, and you, you kind of, <laughs> I can't help but think about the, uh, uh, what we read so often in Ecclesiastes, all of those very just joyful things to read about how one day everything's going to succumb to death, to oblivion. But you come to the treasures of heaven, not so. When you get to the treasures of heaven, these, this reward that God says, I am so ready to give to you. Rather, this is something that can't rust and it can't be destroyed by the moth. No one can even come in and touch it. It's untouchable. It's incorruptible. That's God's reward. That's God's treasures for us. Should we decide that we want to take him up on that offer? And so I, I think we need to ask ourselves, what, what security do we want? The fading security? That guarantee that really doesn't last? Or do we want that confidence, that assurance that surely will last even in the most trying of, of tribulations. Well, going forward in the text, in verses 22 and 23, he, it says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, here, when I first started studying this, I just, I, I simply could not figure out what this had to do with anything. I just thought this was maybe a random interruption. Maybe somebody asked Jesus a question and he had to speak to that specifically. I couldn't figure it out. But as I was studying this, I realized I, I really do think that this still uh, has much to do with the context of what we've been reading about the treasures, whether it be of man or God. What, what does, what, I think the question really is, is it comes back down to our focus. What are you letting your eye focus on? He talks about both sides of those treasures the earthly or the heavenly? Which side do you most often, which side do you uh, predominantly gaze upon? Are you always just thinking about, oh, what a joy it will be to be in heaven? What a joy it will be to be able to sing praises to God for an eternity and looking towards that future? Or are we constantly looking over at the, the shelf at Walmart or, or you know, on Amazon and all the things that we can buy and all the things that we can get and gain, uh, all these material things. I'm not saying that it's bad to, you know, to buy you know, something every now and then on Amazon. What I am saying is if that just, if that consumes all of our desires, that I want more and more and more, that's a problem, surely. Certainly. And so 
We need to, again, come back to the, to the notion that those treasures, these material things, they will ultimately fade away. And more than that, they fail. Uh, over in Proverbs 28 and verse 22. Proverbs 28 and verse 22. It says, A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. I, 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 I like to look throughout the wisdom literature every now and then. Every now and then I, like to, I try to read through the book of Proverbs just to throw it in there as, as, I'm, as you go throughout your daily Bible reading because I think that there are several things that you can connect to all the teachings throughout the Old Testament to the New Testament. And one thing that I think is really pervasive is this notion. We talk about the Proverbs that, you know, this is the rule, not the exception. There's always going to be the exception. It will actually sometimes we say, you know, Proverbs is the rule, and then we get to Ecclesiastes, and that is the major exception. Because you see constantly the, the sorrow that the preacher has to, has to uh, tell, the, that the preacher has to preach. But remember that this is the rule. Yes, you can go after the riches of this world. Yes, you may gain many of those riches. But ultimately, they will still fail you. Ultimately, even that man will return to poverty. Now, it could be that that man does not come to physical poverty on this earth, but one day he will come up very short and he will have a debt that he has not allowed God to, to pay for him. And so we have to be careful about these treasures and understand which one will ultimately fail us in the end. So that's what I think it has to do. The, 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 the eye is the lamp of the body. I think ultimately it has to do with what is our focus. Is it on the heavenly treasure or is it on the earthly treasures? Finally, with this point, what Jesus makes clear in verse 24 is that you can't have a divided loyalty. In verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Maybe your translation says mammon. And so this kind of goes back to what we were talking about as we were going through Psalm 1 not too long ago, that dichotomous language. He doesn't leave much room for you know, someone in the middle. It is either God is your master or he simply is not. You get to choose. You get to choose which yoke you take upon you. But ultimately, you have to bear the consequences of who, who you choose. And we can, we absolutely can deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, God is my master. God truly is the one that I serve. But again, what is your eye focusing on? What has it been focusing on? Has it been focusing on wanting to delve deeper into the scriptures? Or again, has it been focusing more so on social media? I think we can tell just by our everyday actions, just, just how devoted we actually are to the one that we say that we are serving, to the one that we say actually is our master. And just, just realize that as he uses this dichotomous language, both masters are demanding total allegiance. Not partial. They're saying, I want all of you. Now again, you get to choose. So which master do you want to give all of yourself, even your soul, up to? Well, finally, within the last uh, verses, verses 25 through 34 of this text, we've talked about the contention for the attention of, of God or man, the treasures of God or man, and finally I want to look at the concerns, uh, spiritual concerns or carnal concerns that we sometimes allow to consume us. First of all, just a very simple point that we all already know, Jesus says, do not worry. Beginning in verse 25, 
He says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, uh, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Skipping down to verse 34, so do not worry about your about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you think that maybe Jesus is trying to say that anxiety is not something that's supposed to be a part of the Christian's life? Yet, for many, many Christians even, it is. For a lot of people who say that they are disciples of Christ, this is a deep issue that many struggle with. And sometimes it can even get to the point where you have to end up uh, talking to someone, taking medications, and sometimes it can just spiral out of control. I don't, want to, I don't want to belittle anybody who struggles with that. Ultimately, I think we all struggle with anxiety to, to some degree. But I do not want to overlook what Jesus says about this. He says, it's a lack of faith. And what that means is we've got to build that faith if we do struggle with that. If that's something that is uh, one of our uh, prominent struggles in our lives. Look at verse 32 especially. Look at what kind of mindset he puts this into. In verse 32, he says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He doesn't compare this kind of mindset, this worrying mindset, to the hypocrites, to the Pharisees and the scribes that have corrupted the law. Who does he compare it to? But the Gentiles, those who are without God, those who don't have that kind of assurance. And so, again, Jesus puts anxiety, he puts worry into the realm of worldly uh, thinking and worldly habits and a worldly mindset. We We have to just acknowledge that head on. If we don't, then I don't think we can really do much about it. If we're not honest about the problem, this is something that is not supposed to be a part of, of the Christian's mindset. Now, uh, what's interesting is that you actually see this word in a couple of other places that I'd like to look at. But when I, when I say that this kind of mindset is not for the Christian, what I mean is a mindset that is really focused on worrying about the things of the world. Uh, as he talks about clothing and, and uh, what we will eat, what we will wear, and about what tomorrow will bring. Christians, they're not supposed to worry about those things. They're supposed to be concerned with other things. And so this is still talking about a focus on things, the material things, worldly things, rather than the things of God. In verse 33, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I don't think he's saying, don't think about those things ever. But what he's saying is, this shouldn't be something that consumes you like the rest of the world. They don't have a God that they can lean on, but we do. Now, Again, I said I wanted to look at a few instances where this word is actually used, this word worry, where he says in verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow. I want to look uh, at a couple of instances, one of them being in Luke chapter 10 in verse 41, as as he is really uh, 
speaking and teaching uh, throughout his ministry. He's with Martha and Mary, some people who were closer with him than, than, than others. He says in verse, it says in verse 41, but the Lord answered and said to her, as Martha, or, uh, uh, as Martha comes to Jesus, she's serving and she really is serving Jesus in, in their house, in their home. And, and Mary is not serving with her. And so Martha comes to Jesus complaining, saying, you need to do something about this. Tell her to get up. Tell her to serve with me. But this is what he says to her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part. And it shall not be taken away from her. Now, one thing I want to mention. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're doing something wrong here. You're, you're sinning here. Was she doing something sinful? She was serving. And he even acknowledges that. You were, she was doing something that isn't sinful. She was doing something that is actually supposed to describe God's people. But at this moment, that was not the most important thing. What do you think is more important? Serving or literally listening to words of life being spoken in your midst? What do you think is more important? Uh, going and doing the chores that, you know, every, that you're supposed to do every day. This is something that we, that we this is, a, you know, a routine that we go through. This is something that we're supposed to do every day. Do you think it's more important to get those chores done right now or sit in the presence of the creator manifested in the flesh? Obvious answer, right? Mary, she's chosen the good part. And guess what? Jesus says not going to be taken away from her and there's some comfort that we should take from that but she was what i want to take away from this is that she was worried and bothered about things that weren't ultimately sinful but they were distracting they were distracting her from what was more what was most important from that good part of listening to uh jesus uh deity speaking before them there's another passage that i want to bring up uh and it's a bit of a lengthier passage but it's in first corinthians chapter seven now just just Notice how this word is used. And I've highlighted the word again, but it, it's not translated as worried. Notice how Paul talks about this, uh, uses this word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 32 beginning. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. As he's giving them some advice ultimately about, especially in, particularly in this location, not necessarily advice he gives everywhere. But in this location he says, it's probably going to be better for you to be unmarried. So he says... Why is that? One who is unmarried is worried about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is worried or concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is worried or concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit. Not to put a restraint upon you. But to promote what is appropriate. And to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now what are we supposed to take from this? Is Paul saying that getting married is worldly? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's, it's a divine institution. It's, the very, it's one of the very first relationships. It is the first relationship you see besides God and man in the garden. And God says this is good. It is something that, it is not good for man to be alone. And so this is not a worldly relationship, uh, you know, in a carnal sense, but it is a worldly relationship in the sense that it is not nearly as important as a relationship with God. And here, there are some people who, who uh, especially in Corinth, that if they get married, they're going to be 
much more, as he says in verse 35, distracted. And they're not going to be able to spend as much time uh, as, as maybe Paul can being you know, single, never being married. They're not going to be able to spend nearly as much time on doing the things of the Lord, on, on uh, you know, participating in, in, in uh, doing as much evangelism as he is. He's much more free to do that. And so I think we can understand uh, what Paul is trying to say here. He's not saying that it's sinful or it's wrong to get married. But he is saying that if you do get married, just understand you're going to have less time to do the things that you ultimately want to do more. Like serve God. Uh, and, and everything that would fall under that realm. Now, why did I bring this up? Ultimately, what is he, uh, what is he saying that they should be concerned about? He wants them to be concerned or worried about the things of God, not the things of man. And so, really, the answer, as you, as you think about this, Jesus says, do not worry. But there are some moments where we are supposed to worry. There are some concerns that we are supposed to have. But it's never going to look like the world. <laughs> it's never going to look like all of the priorities that they put so much emphasis on and that they are so concerned about. So what are a few things that, that God says that we are supposed to be worried or concerned about? Uh, go over to Philippians chapter 6 very quickly. Philippians chapter 6. Or Philippians chapter 4 in verse 6. I think I said Philippians chapter 6. Chapter 4 in verse 6. Um, again, another very familiar passage and really just kind of restating what Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 6 of verse 34. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so I think we have uh, a little bit of our answer given here. What are we supposed to do then? Well, first of all, we offload it all onto God, as he says he wants. He wants us to give these, these concerns to him. He wants us to give these things that will take our devotion and will take our time and will take our minds away from him ultimately to fill it up with spiritual things that's one of the issues you know sometimes people people don't realize especially when it comes to anxiety you know you can get rid of the thing that that has uh, really has the face of your worry that is kind of taking um, uh, shape as your worry but if you get rid of that thing that still leaves a hole that needs to be filled and guess what the world has got lots of things that they want to bring in and that they want that they hope will fill you up, that you can be focused on even more than the, last, uh, than the last issue or demon that we had originally. And so it's not just offloading and, and getting the worldly mindset out, but it's taking on a spiritual mindset. And it's taking on all the things that God wants us to take on as, as we get to the end of verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's drawing nearer to Him and cutting away everything that distracts us from him. Um, now, again, what are a few things, what are a few concerns that we should have that I think we find in the scriptures? Well, first of all, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse, in the middle, in the middle of verse 24, Paul says, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor so to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's the same word that's used for worry. We'll have concern for one another. We'll worry about each other. What is he saying? Not that you're going to be concerned about all of these things that the rest of the world is, but rather you're going to be concerned about your brethren. 
you're going to be concerned about each other. The family of God. Now just here alone, how are you doing? Are you more concerned? Do you spend more of your time on, you know, blood relatives who have made it clear that they will never, never give themselves to God, that they don't even care about his word? Or are you going to give more time and more energy to those who really, those relationships that should transcend even the deepest of uh, blood relatives and those relationships? How are we doing on that? Are we truly concerned about the brethren as we are supposed to be, the, 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 the things of the kingdom? Well, not only that, but in Philippians chapter 2, just another example of the same thing in verse 19. Paul says again, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Even Paul says a, a couple of times that he has... He, he's stressed for several different reasons, one of which being he's, he, he worries about all of the congregations, all of these churches that he, that he is uh, trying to encourage himself, and oftentimes when he's even in prison, still trying to encourage. Paul had worries too. But I think the dominant worry for him was that he was trying to spread God's kingdom, that he was trying to share the gospel with all, and that... He was worried about the encouragement and the well-being spiritually of his brothers and sisters in Christ. I really don't think that Paul was very worried about all of these other earthly things. You can kind of tell just from the prison epistles as he's writing to the Philippians, listen, hey, I'm good. <laughs> you just listen to his language and you're, I mean, you're thinking this man has been this man has been shackled to one of the praetorium guards. He's, he's never alone because he's kind of considered a flight risk. And yet listen to his words over and over again in Philippians. I rejoice. You need to be joyful as well. For several reasons. Because guess what? The gospel has been preached to the entire praetorium guard. Also because guess what? Even when people are preaching Christ from, from, a, 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 you know, from, a, bad, uh, from a bad, for bad reasoning... Maybe they're trying to hurt me. Guess what? The gospel's still being preached. Paul really did. He was concerned about the spiritual things, and he left all of those things, hunger, abundance, none of those things. None of those seem to ever really uh, affect him. What does he say at the very end of Philippians chapter 4, in verse 13? Hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can suffer need, and I can suffer abundance. That's the kind of concern that we need to have and so I would just ask as we conclude this evening Christian what has been your focus recently have you been focusing on the attention the treasures the concerns of this world or have you been concerned with the things that God has for you that he's written down for you to truly engulf your life if you haven't been focusing on the right things guess what you can refocus we can go to his scriptures, we can go to his revealed will, and we can learn what is my next step forward. What does he want me to do? It's not that hard. All we got to do is genuinely look into the word. If you are not a Christian, I would just ask a, a similar but different question. Are you tired of making earthly things and earthly uh, bonds your focus or your priority? If you're not yet, I promise you will be someday. One thing that the world never fails in is failing. Those relationships, 
they're always going to fail. Those treasures, they're always going to fade. That attention, how many times did Jesus say, you're getting your, your reward in full? All the attention you're getting right now, guess what? That's it. Just like that, that quick. It's not worth it, ever. Would you rather have an everlasting attention by the Father? That when you die, you know that you will be with him and he will be with you. And it will be not just, not just a loving relationship, but the very culmination of what a loving relationship is supposed to be for an eternity. Would you have that uh, relationship? Would, do you want to put that kind of relationship on this evening? You can if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you believe his words, you're willing to repent of the things that he says to do away with, confess that he is the son of the living God and to be baptized into his death, that you can have newness in his life. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward, let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.